The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 7. I want to return to the epistemological question briefly at the end here. In chapter 12, there's a parable, and Jesus says, Be ready, be dressed for action, have your lamps lit, be like those waiting for a master return from a wedding banquet so that they're always uh, alert and so on. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those servants. The idea of coming in the middle of the night. Be alert. Be alert. How do you stay alert? Well, it's the hardest time to stay alert is the middle of the night. Now, could could Jesus or Luke be talking about late night, you know, staying up all night? Surely not. The middle of the night is the hardest time to stay alert. Now, this staying alert is an epistemological reference. Can you stay, can you stay clear-headed? When can you, when's, when's it hardest to stay clear-headed? You know, Kipling says, when, can you keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you? Well, how do you stay alert when it's the middle of the night. See, the middle of the night is Germany in the 30s. The middle of the night is, is uh, I'm going to get in real trouble for this. I'm weighing my... Well, it could be, but I'm thinking something. I, I, should, I have to parcel out my political barbs to, to the right and left. I have to think about a, a Republican version of it. The middle of the night is when the Democratic Convention comes to its feet cheering the uh, pro-abortion plank. That's the middle of the night. And the middle. And there's another version of that in the Republican Party, I promise you. It's when they come to their feet cheering Pat Robertson's uh, hoopla about uh, American nationalism or whatever. It's when everybody's coming to their feet in those kind of triumphant moments. Can you be alert then? See, that's an epistemology. It's moral. It's all that. But there's an epistemology. It's talking about clarity. And that's, you know, when Paul says, if the powers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They don't know. Jesus said they know not what they do. This is exactly what happens in those moments. We get caught up in it. Now, that resonates with something slightly earlier in chapter 12, where Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. And whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Before others means in a crowd. Acknowledging me in a crowd doesn't mean necessarily saying, well, Jesus is my Lord, my personal Lord and Savior, or something like that. It means, I think, in a larger sense, a more generic sense, it means, will my identification with the excluded one survive the frenzy of the excluders? Will I be able to continue to identify with the excluded one as the as the excluders build the frenzy of their unanimity. Can I do that? 
Anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge. This goes back to the thing about staying awake, staying alert. And then he says, for anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And I think here he recognizes that we will all be swallowed up by the crowd. We can't help it. The power of the, the... The gospel is very candid. It's not romantic at all. Yes, indeed, Peter, I know you say you won't, but you will. I know, I know, and you mean it, and you're earnest, but it won't happen, because when it starts to build, you'll get caught up in it. So that's not the question. So he says, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, you'll be forgiven, because you're going to. Question is, will you hear the cock crow? I think blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is to do is is somehow cutting oneself off from the crowing of the cock, and we'll not be forgiven. Not because the infinitely forgiving God isn't there to forgive us. It's because by cutting ourselves off from that, we cut ourselves off from the experience of forgiveness, which is preceded by the experience of contrition, a recognition of the truth. I wanted to end with another parable, which is the parable of the rich man. And I think of it because it has something to do with cutting ourselves off from or blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. At least, I don't know if it does or not, but this is what came to me. There's this parable. It's a rich man. He's having great success, producing abundantly. He thought to himself, what should I do for I have no place to store all these crops. I mean, it's a huge bumper crop. And he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, I want to say something about this. But before I do, I want to make a joke. I... This was in the New York Times. It's a full-page ad in the New York Times. It's been in there several times in the last couple of weeks, or last month or so. This is a book that's being promoted by the author of the book. I'm, not that I'm beneath promoting <laughs> books, but <laughs> it's entitled Die Rich. And, and the subtitle is Die Rich and Tax-Free. It's very... But I think, you know, in terms of a marketing strategy, I wonder... Because the headline, you see, is, you're going to die. But, the, but right underneath it, it says, and it will cost you 55% of everything you've got. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to cost 100%. <laughs> you know, I thought it was 100%. So there you have it. It's only 55%. He's complaining that it's that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty <laughs> well anyway that <laughs> that I, I thought of that when I was reading this God comes and says that's it well but the real reason I wanted to read this is because it has to do I think with a subtle form of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit that that threatens us in our day and that is this man says to his soul, and you have a dialogue between this man and his soul, 
And I, I wanted to end with that because there are two, it's very subtle and you don't notice it, but there are two things I'd say about it. One is, he's talking to himself. You see, in the biblical world, you don't do that. You have introspection, of course, of scrutiny and examination of conscience, but you don't talk to yourself. In the biblical world, you talk to God or you talk to other people, but you don't talk to yourself. This guy's talking to himself. That's a problem. I would say that that's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I said earlier, is like a lawyer who's there when the money exchanges. Anytime communication is happening, the Holy Spirit, real communication, real heartfelt communication is happening, the Holy Spirit is there. You see? And to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to start talking to oneself. And this guy's talking to himself. And I think it's also a symptom of the division the inner breakdown, because when you start talking to yourself, there are two people there. You already have the dichotomizing that was, th that was threatened in that earlier passage when Jesus says, the master will come and cut you to pieces. You'll begin to fall apart. You'll start talking to yourself, and pretty soon there won't be two of you. There'll be seven or a whole more than that, you see. And I think about it in terms of something that we did a couple of years ago, which is Dostoevsky's Underground Man. He's descending into this infernal, internal dialogue that is going nowhere but to hell. And Virginia Woolf's characters in The Waves, it's all what's going through their heads about what they're seeing and what they're doing. It's a kind of internal dialogue that has some of the features of real communication, real otherness, so that it masks it in a way. But there's nothing there. And so I wanted to end with that. I don't know if it's the best thing, but it's a very subtle form of the disintegrating process, which is all through this part of the gospel. The old ways of maintaining coherence and unity, either at the, both at the psychological and the social level, are going to collapse. And if you do not gather with me, you will scatter. Well, St. Luke has made a contribution to Christianity and to the world that's incalculable. But these chapters we're going to look at today in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 13 through 15, contain some of the most important contributions of his, I think. And we will conclude today with a discussion of the prodigal son parable, which alongside the, the Good Samaritan must be considered the most influential parable in the New Testament, perhaps. And I, I want to spend a, a good deal of time with it. It's so fascinated am I by it that I, I have about four interpretations of it. Well, they're not mutually exclusive, but uh, they're at different levels. Uh, so I want to save time for that, but on the way there, there's so many interesting things. So I'll try to touch on them and bring out what I think are the important features of them, but not dwell too long on them. The first is right at the beginning of chapter 13, we have the following. At that very time, there were some present who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we have no historical record of this event, the event to which this reference refers, except what we find here in Luke. 
it's not out of character for uh, the, the Roman authorities to, even though they tolerated the Jews, to occasionally flex their muscle and to crush what they regarded as a questionable uh, upwelling of uh, Jewish zeal. And they might well do it at a, at a, at a, at a sacrificial event, at a, a liturgical event, because for the Jews, you know, there was no separation between politics and religion. So their political zeal uh, overflowed in their religious zeal and vice versa. So to, uh, to uh, flex its muscle, Rome might very well have chosen the venue of a, of a religious event. So here's a very interesting reference here because aside from its historical uh, connection, it has a tremendous symbolic resonance, I think. So somebody tells Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. That's a pretty vivid image. And they may well have been, as occasionally you see in the Gospels, they may well have been trying to get Jesus to think about their crisis. You see, he's coming to announce the big crisis, the breaking in of the kingdom, the, the undermining of the old order. Uh, and typically, we humans want to not talk about that. We want to talk about a pseudo-crisis, a sub-crisis. This is how I define the word hypocrite, you know, hypocrites means uh, the, the, under the judgment, under the crisis. So it's possible, this is a folk etymology, it's possible to understand hypocrite as someone who is determined to be primarily fascinated by the pseudo-crisis as opposed to the real crisis. In any event, this might be, the, this might be people saying, look here, the big issue, of course, is the Jews versus Rome. So would you please pay attention to it? Because look what Pilate has done. It could be that. It's not quite clear from this context because for Luke, Luke has other things in mind, and Jesus no doubt did as well. So Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? This is how the first century Jews would have kept their uh, uh, notion of order coherent. That is to say, certain people die in the same way certain people are blind or crippled or or uh, have bad fortune, it must be because God is out of favor with them, that, that God disapproves of the way they're living. And that's how you keep the whole thing nice and neat and orderly, because then everything has, everything reverberates with some kind of moral implication. And this would have been the way, clearly the way, that the Jews of the time would have sorted out this otherwise di disturbing event. Suddenly, the the you know the the loose the political loose cannon comes in and people die, and the automatic assumption is well they died and others didn't because their lives were not as favored as those who survived and so on. So Jesus is going to burst that particular bubble. So he asks, uh, do you think that they suffered this way? The ones who suffered this way were worse sinners than everybody else? No, I tell you, he said. Unless you repent, however you will all perish as they did. And I want to focus on this. Unless you experience metanoia, that's the Greek word, a change of, it's a change of mind, but it's much more profound than a, a, simply a mental change. It's a change of everything. Unless you experience that, you will die, you will perish, just as they did. 
So the question is, how did they? Well, we'll come back to that. Jesus adds one more story here. He says, or, for example, those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. This is another historical event that must have been current at the time, the Tower of Siloam fell. This is in Jerusalem. Jesus says, do you think that they, on whom the tower fell and were killed by, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. question is, how did they perish? See, so I want to come back to this. You will Go to the first one. You will perish just as they did. How exactly did they perish? The Galileans' blood was mixed with the, mingled with the blood of their sacrificial offerings. Now, what does this mean? We have to go back and f get a feel for what the whole sacrificial apparatus was all about. There's a, a, an interesting passage in this regard in uh, Abraham Heschel's study of the prophets, which is a marvelous two-volume study of the prophets. And in there he says this. Now, this is written in the 60s, and it has a little bit of the tinge of the concern, historical concerns of the 60s, but I think we can still... Uh, appreciate its, uh, its larger significance. He says, quote, The sacrificial cult was endowed with supreme political significance. It was the chief requirement for the security of the land and may be regarded as analogous to the cult of military defense in our own day. Writing now, you see, at a time when the, uh, when sort of the national security state and, uh, and uh, national defense was such a big issue. Both, says uh, Heschel, that say both the ancient sacrificial cult and the modern, uh, what he calls the cult of military defense, both have their roots in the concern for security, cease to appease the gods with offerings on the altars, and their anger will strike you down. Sacrificing is a way of preventing the attack, end quote. So you see, the sacrificial altar is, its purpose, certainly anthropologically, its purpose is to ward off violence. The sacrificial scene is a scene of homeopath, a homeopathic dose of sacralized violence, most typically uh, spent on an animal victim, the purpose of which is to ward off the other kind of violence. You see? So what does it mean to say that their blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices? It means not only that the sacrificial system collapsed, but that it collapsed at the very site on which it was taking place. That it was overwhelmed. It not only did not ward off the violence, but it became the venue for the violence. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish as they did. In other words, you will perish while working the apparatus of the sacrificial machinery which you think will ward off the violence by which you will perish. I think it's a tremendous insight. You will perish as they did. So then, Jesus adds something else, which is the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them in Jerusalem. Unless you experience metanoia, you will perish as they did. And I would say, this is not biblical interpretation. As you know, it's midrash or something. The question is, how did they perish? And the answer is, accidentally. I mean, this is a way of thinking about it. 
their death, because Jesus has just eliminated the rationale for their death, which is a must have, uh, he, he helped people overcome this notion that, well, uh, must have been because they were out of favor with God. Jesus says that's not it. So how did they perish? Accidentally. What does that mean? I, this, uh, this is midrash. I, I'm trying to get us to think about this in terms of our own situation. All modern death is accidental. Death in the modern world is accidental. It has no meaning. It has no meaning. It's just something you can't quite put off anymore, and there it happens. Boom. You see? And we have all this science and technology, the purpose of which is to put it off and put it off. But when it happens, it's meaningless, really. So modern death is accidental. To, it, unless we undergo a metanoia, our death will be an accident, really. Well, it won't be an accident probably that something fell on us, maybe that, but most likely it would be an accident because, you know, we had bad genes and we got a certain cancer. You see, it's, that, it's accidental like that. And if death is accidental, it's meaningless. And if it's meaningless, so is life. We don't make that connection. That's a little bit of a leap. But it, it doesn't take long for the meaninglessness of death to eat its way back into life and destroy the sense of meaning that we think life might have, even though death is meaningless. So I think there's a tremendously powerful uh, insight here that unless you undergo a metanoia, you will die as they did. If we do undergo a metanoia, now Jesus is talking about a Christian metanoia, the kind of metanoia that requires the cross. If we undergo a metanoia, then death becomes the moment of truth, an opportunity to lay down one's life in a final act of self-surrender. Not surrender to death in that romantic way, wrapping the drapery of my couch about me and lying down to pleasant dreams. Not that. In fact, a kind of conquering of death, rather. The way Christ conquered it, which is to say, to allowing it to spend its force. Allowing it to spend its full force. Confident in the confidence we have in Christ that this is a dying and rising universe. We can die as they did, either by, by uh, participating in the old sacrificial system for warding off violence and confusion and finding ourselves the victims of its, of its backfiring, uh, or we can die as they did by dying deaths that are fundamentally accidental and therefore meaningless. So right after this, Jesus tells a parable, which is the parable of the fig tree. A man planted a fig tree in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it, found none. He said to the gardener, see, I've waited three years. There's still no fruit on this thing. It's had time to mature, and uh, I've waited long enough. Cut it down. And the gardener replied, sir, let it alone for one more year, and let me dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. And if not, you can cut it down. This is really a wonderful parable. I mean, first of all, it's a passion prediction. 
in a very subtle way. It's a passion prediction. This tree is the biblical promise, the tree of the biblical promise. This is the tree, this is uh, historical Judaism. It's the people of the promise. It's the people of the book. It's the biblical tradition. And it's not bearing fruit. The voices of the prophets have died out. Uh, the, the pharisaical uh, uh, hardening of the arteries is taking place. Everybody's all in a fuss about how keeping these little Sabbath rules and so on and so forth. Now, this is from one perspective. Now, it's, you know, there's a lot of nuance, but from the point of view of this parable, there you have it. It's not bearing fruit. Same thing could be said in Christian terms about almost any age in the Christian uh, history. So it's not bearing fruit. And so God says, well, cut it down, which is a way of saying, well, we, let's start over. We started with Abraham, and this thing got to here. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You know, let's go and see. Let's try Zoroaster or something. I mean, I'm being... So, but Jesus says, Jesus here is clearly the gardener. He says, give it one more year. Now, Jesus says this as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And the Luke and Jesus knows absolutely clearly why he's going to Jerusalem, just as the, just as the Johannine Jesus, well, the Jesus of all the Gospels, really, uh, but in a very specific way, the Jesus of uh, Luke's Gospel has set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows what that means. And so this is a parable about his movement towards Jerusalem. Give me one more year, and let me work the soil a little bit. Let me dig around and fertilize the soil. And for me, this resonates with this idea of the remnant. Jesus understands that the, the, the revelation simply cannot happen this side of the cross. So, so he begins to prepare his followers, his closest followers especially, for the metanoia that will happen afterwards when, the, when they realize the liberation that the cross has made possible for them. So he began, he's, he says, well, I'm just going to be working the soil right now, you see, and uh, fertilizing it so that next year, which is just a way of saying a little while later, it will bear fruit. And it then is obviously the cross. You see, it's, a one, it's so resonant, this, this parable is. And because, you know, Jesus is going to is going to be working the, the soil, which is a wonderful thing, because we tend to think, and particularly some of us moderns tend to think that Jesus is a teacher. He's not a teacher. I mean, he taught, but hell, I teach. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a revealer, you see? He's, he's, he's the icon of the living God. So, uh, he's not teaching in the sense that he's trying to tell people little things they don't know and how to get their lives together. Well, there's a little of that. But mostly he's just, he's working the soil so that the metanoia will happen. You can't, metanoia does not happen because of teaching. In case any of you have been coming here all these years <laughs> thinking that, it's, that we're going down that road. I mean, teaching is working the soil. That's okay. But uh, it doesn't happen because of that. It happens because of something else. 
and Jesus is simply working the soil. I think it's absolutely fabulous. And I couldn't help thinking of the passage, which I'll just mention, and then you can uh, connect the dots, but uh, it's in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me with me and him bears fruit in plenty. For cut off from me, you can do nothing. And I have said in past sessions that I think the day will come when we will understand the, that text in a very powerful way. Um, so, so let me move on because I want to save as much time as I can for the prodigal son story. Uh, next episode, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. It's the Sabbath, so it's the, it's the uh, you know it's, it's a setup job here. We know what happens on the Sabbath. Somebody comes to Jesus who needs healing. Uh, and this time, it's a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. See, you, Luke is just an absolute genius, you see. It's, it's a spirit that has crippled her. And later on, we'll find out Jesus says it's Satan that bound her. And Satan is the accuser. That's what the word means. A spirit has crippled her and we have to remember again, if to, to, uh, an affliction meant that you were out of favor with God. And so what is the effect of this crippling spirit? She cannot stand upright. She cannot stand up straight. She cannot hold her head up straight. Isn't that wonderful? And when Jesus saw her, he called her over. This is the beginning of, a, of, a, of the theme of this part of the gospel. Here's someone who cannot hold his head up straight or her head up straight. And why? Well, poor, afflicted, crippled, lame, blind, outcast, sinners, tax collectors, whatever it is, come over here. See? Come over here, he says. And he says, woman, you are set free. He laid his hands on her. Immediately, now get this, she stood up straight and began praising God. And it's absolutely essential that both those things be mentioned. It's like the great commandment. It has to, the first part of it fits with the second part and so on. She stood up straight and began praising God. And we have spent the last hundred years uh, in our various psychotherapies trying to get people to stand up straight without praising God. <laughs> and it hasn't worked. That we're, <laughs> they stand up straight and then they back over again <laughs> so it's it's a wonderful metaphor for what Jesus's ministry was all about standing up straight and praising God well of course the Pharisees were indignant because he did this on the Sabbath and so they began to uh, fume about that and he uses this wonderful metaphor uh, which is both a metaphor and a historical reference, which is that the among the, and the all these rules about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath, and one of them uh, had to do with which knots you could untie and which you couldn't because untying them would be, would be work and you couldn't work on the Sabbath. You could untie the knot that tied your domestic animal to the manger so that you could lead it to water so that it wouldn't die on the Sabbath <laughs> from lack of water. So you got to untie that knot. And Jesus seizes on this little piece of minutia and says, "You have there, there are these donkeys and oxen. You untie the knot 
and lead them to water on the Sabbath. Satan has this woman tied, this, this daughter of Abraham tied to a post for 18 years, and you're bitching and moaning because I untied the knot. <laughs> it's really, that's really great. And it said the crowds began rejoicing. No doubt because, you see, the liberation he comes to bring is not going to be shackled by these little nervous, fidgety scrupulosities. So then comes next the two sort of twin parables about the kingdom, which are very well known to us, and they uh, appropriately so. And the first is this. He says, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And I want to do something. I told you I had three or four interpretations of the prodigal son story, and uh, so I want to, and we, I don't know if we have time for them all, and so I want to kind of take care of one of them as we go along a little bit. And this sets me up for it. So what I'm going to do here is another sort of midrash on this. And this next, the next little uh, parable or simile is, uh, is uh, uh, also appropriate to what I want to do here. And that is the idea, of course, is that the kingdom is a very tiny little thing. And it grows. And, and this has to be referenced to the whole notion of the working of the paraclete. You see, it enters in and it begins grow, to grow and grow and grow until suddenly it becomes the uh, source of things. And here, the image is, when this thing finally grows, the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Now, here's the midrash I want to do on that. And it, it's just another way of talking about what, one of the things I want to talk about with, in terms of the prodigal son story. And that is, we in the West are like the prodigal son, at least the first part of the story. The question is whether or not we'll be like the prodigal son in the last part of the story. We're like the prodigal son in the first part of the story because we have taken that heritage and walked away from its source thinking that it could be maintained independently of its source, and we have squandered it. Or we're in the midst, we're in the process of squandering it. And we're in the process of discovering the meaninglessness and the tending to the swine and the whole sort of terrible meaninglessness of that story. But that, that that happens when we walk away from it, from the source of it. So that's been on my mind. And what I was thinking of this week was how the master thinkers of the of Renaissance and Enlightenment humanism are the ones who built their nest in the in the in the branches of the the great shrub or tree that the mustard seed grew into. In other words, our cultural tradition began to be so shot through with some of these Christian sensibilities, which have to do with taking care of the outcast, having empathy for the victim, uh, wanting to help others, uh, turning the other cheek. Not that we lived up to it, but just to say the ethos was so much a part of it that we thought that's the way we humans are. And so we thought, well, that's all we need. We're just, we can just, and we don't need this, the religious claptrap, which of course had, there were so many pharisaical features to it. It's a complicated issue. But the point is, that we walk away from it, and then we end up with a kind of enlightenment 
rationality or then some kind of post-enlightenment humanism, which just begins to fall apart. And so anyway, I thought of that in terms of the birds coming and making their nests in the tree. This little nest-building enterprise was based on something that happened long ago and that was not a natural phenomenon in the ordinary sense, but was a revelatory one that grew in human history, namely the sowing of the seed of the kingdom. So you see what I'm saying. The same thing comes in the next version. Again, Luke does this thing of having one be a man, one be a woman. The next one is, uh, to what should I compare the kingdom of God, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all the flour was leavened. And this, again, I think is the way the kingdom works, the way the revelation works. It, it enters in and begins to move all through the historical and cultural and psychosocial uh, uh, dynamic and begins to take, you know, have its effect, have its leavening effect. And if we don't recognize the source of it, we look around at a certain point, we think we take it for granted. We say, oh, well, this is the way we are. And since we have no, have no uh, debt to anything that brought this about, we can go off on our own and think that it will continue. One of the ways of looking at this is that the idea of progress, you see, the idea of progress and the, the, the way in which it became fashionable in the 18th, 19th, and 20th, early 20th century, I say early 20th century because nobody believes it anymore. Now, that, that they believe we're going to have absolutely supercomputers and all that, but the progress in the sense that we felt it when we were young. This is one of the terrible things. That, that notion of progress was a reduction, a terrible narrowing of the notion of the biblical promise, which was eschatological. You see, history is going someplace. Something is happening in history, which is very exciting. And that's the, that's the biblical notion of promise, you see. And when it got secularized and turned into progress, it's just exactly like the prodigal son. You walk away from the source of that promise, and you tell yourself all these things, but pretty soon it comes to nothing. And this is, I think, something we should really think about. I've often said, you know, if you went to, if you went to sleep in 1965 and woke up in 1995, you would pull your hair out. Uh, it's when when you see certain things happening in cultural life. When I was young, when you were young, we all knew that the future was going to be better than the past, didn't we? That was naive. It was romantic. Nevertheless, it was as as distorted as it was. It was still a product of the biblical promise. It was a secularized distortion of the biblical promise, no doubt, but still it was part of that. But because it was a secularized distortion, when it didn't pan out, the whole thing collapsed. And now, look around and ask yourself, do the 15-year-olds think that the future is going to be better than the past? No, they don't. Now, this is a terrible thing. We are, we, it is our fault. We are depriving these children of the promise. I don't think there's anything worse we could do to them. And they are going into a 
an absolute tailspin because of this. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's a form of child sacrifice, practically. It's a terrible thing. So we have to bring some promise back into it. I was reading this morning's New York Times. This is hot off the press. 45 minutes ago, I read this story in the New York Times. It's not very inspiring. But it's a pop review, a rock review. And I'll just read it to you. It starts this way. Filter, this is the name of the rock group. Filter, which performed on Tuesday night at Limelight, is an exercise in bottled rage. The band whose debut album, Short Bus, has been slowly climbing the pop charts for three months, consists of five ordinary-looking guys expressing their anger in the simplest way a rock band can. They scream and play their guitars loudly. Filter's frontman, Rick Patrick, sang songs at this concert, sang songs of fear, hate, and death, much like Trent Reasoner of Nine Inch Nails, but instead of internalizing his anger, he turned it outward and lashed out at those around him. Quote, I think you'd be better off if you were dead, he screamed. And in the filter's hit single, Mr. Patrick sang about suicide as if it were a way to take a stand against society, delivering the song's title line, quote, Hey man, nice shot with a mixture of admiration, condescension, and sarcasm. The band members even seem to view the concert itself as an assault on the audience, albeit a catharsis-producing one." End quote. Well, just take a look at that. Now, does that represent the whole generation? No. Is it a sign of the times? Yes. What is it telling us? A whole lot of things one of which is these kids have no sense of the promise. And one of the reasons for that is that we lost the sense of the promise when we converted it into a notion of progress. And so all of that comes out, that's a little preachy, but all of that comes out of Jesus talking about the kingdom working slowly from mustard seed to this great uh, bush that welcomes all the birds of the air and, and the and uh, the loaf that is leavened by uh, a little bit of yeast. So that's the way it works. And we, we have to find another way to bring that back into our experience because the sort of perverted hint of it that we carried with us with this idea of progress is now collapsing. So the next episode in Luke's Gospel has the Pharisees coming up to Jesus and saying, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, uh, Luke doesn't have the, the story of Peter admonishing Jesus not to go to Jerusalem where he might get in trouble, you know, and Jesus in the other gospel says, get behind me, Satan. So we don't have that, but there's a little bit of a hint of that here because the Pharisees, do the Pharisees, are they really concerned about Jesus' safety? Maybe, but maybe they just are looking for a way to get him out of there, you know. But in any event, they say, you better watch out because Herod's, going to come after you. He wants to kill you. And Jesus says to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today, tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day 
I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. So Herod's, Herod's uh, territory is Galilee, but Jesus and Jesus is in Galilee. He's headed towards Jerusalem. It's as though they come to him and they say, you better speed up your itinerary here because he's on your trail. But the, Luke and Jesus is on a schedule. He is on a schedule. He is checking his clock and his calendar all the time because there's a rendezvous he's going to have. And the coordinates of this rendezvous, the geographical coordinate is Jerusalem and uh, the, the temporal coordinate is Passover. And he's not going to be rushed. You see, it has to happen. Now, biblical scholars roll their eyes and say, well, you know, obviously the historical Jesus didn't, had no notion of this. And that, I mean, the biblical scholars, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot say, well, we're, a lot of them allow for a lot more accidental aspects of Jesus' death than the Gospels seem to, uh, seem to uh, uh, acknowledge. The Gospel tells us, and I have no problem with it, that Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he had to do in order to do it. He knew where it had to happen, when it had to happen. And he began to prepare the ground for it, just as that metaphor says he dug around the tree, you see, and fertilized it. He knew what he was doing. And he says here, I'm not going to rush it. And it's not going to happen in Galilee. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. And he is, you know, I don't want to say he's choreographing the event, but there's a feature of that to it. At least if we entertain that idea, we can appreciate what Christian theology and Christian doctrine has always said, which is that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. And simply, all we need to do now is emphasize the intentionality of that and the clarity of Jesus' understanding. Because it's not just a question of getting crucified or getting victimized by the crowd. Jesus could have been victimized by the crowd by being, by being chased off the cliff, you know, when, at the Gerizim Demoniac. There are all these instances where Jesus is threatened by the crowd. He sneaks away, goes away. It's not time. It's not the right place. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. You, millions of people have died at the hands of mobs, and lots of them have been innocent. But you see, if you're going to break it the way Jesus broke it, it has to happen at a certain time, at a certain place. And so he knows where that is and when that is. And he's not going to have some insignificant moral reprobate like Herod Antipas screw up the schedule, you see. And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now, you know what this is like? This is like those the those uh, night vision binoculars, which if without them you can't you see certain things a little foggy. That's all. With them you see all this other stuff you could never have seen without it. Most people when they looked at Jerusalem they saw the shining city on the hill, the great temple, da 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 da. da. And Jesus is looking at it in a different way. He's seeing the inside of its sacral status, and he's seeing it as a place where the prophets are, are stoned and killed. And he said, I'm going there. Because he knows what happens there. He knows how the sacrality is generated and regenerated. You see what I mean? The Luke and Jesus knows that. I don't have any doubt that the historical Jesus knew that. And then this wonderful pair of, of metaphor. 
how often, still speaking of Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. This is the such an, it's a wonderful feminine image, by the way. It's the best feminine image of, of Christ that we have. And the desire to gather, one of the major themes of this gospel is scattering and gathering. If you do not gather with me, you will be scattered. You see, the old way of gathering is going to be destroyed. There's only one other one, and I'm it. That's what the, the Jesus of the Gospels is saying. And now he's using that same notion of wanting to gather, wanting to gather, but not in the old way. Apropos of this gathering and scattering, there's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, which refers to the gathering and scattering in a very, in a very complex and fascinating way. And it's the famous one where Caiaphas uh, expresses what I call the Caiaphas formula for things, which is the formula for the sacrificial system. And it goes like this, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said, quote, you don't seem to have grasped the situation at all. You fail to see that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed, end quote. And then the evangelist says, he did not speak in his own person. It was as high priest that he made this prophecy that Jesus was to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather together in unity the scattered children of God, end quote. And I think everything is there, really. The old way of gathering is the sacrificial one. Throw one out, expel one, and create a social unanimity in the act of expelling that will gather these, un unanimity minus one, the old way. But Jesus is going to use that old way to destroy that form of unification and to become the new gathering point the new non-sacrificial gathering point. If humanity is going to begin to gather in a non-sacrificial way, he will be the point of that. He will be the exemplar of that. And the new glue will not be the prohibitions and rituals and expulsion mechanisms, but will be forgiveness. The new glue will be forgiveness. Anyway, then Jesus goes on after this marvelous metaphor of the hen gathering. He says, and I'll tell you this, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is a faith proclamation. Jesus now is entering, he's moving towards Jerusalem. And as we'll see here in a minute, uh, as you get closer and closer to Jerusalem, the, the problem that Jerusalem represents becomes more palpable. And so Jesus is entering, you could say, the zone of Jerusalem. It's like a twilight zone. And he knows, as, he, as I said earlier when I talked about the remnant, he knows that the people following him are, don't quite get it. And he knows that they're just as subject to the mimetic contagion that will reach its climax in Jerusalem as anybody else in the world. And so he says, 
we're, we're going to walk into this twilight zone, and in a few minutes, you're not going to see me. You're not, you see, that's that kind of prediction. You won't see me. The next time you see me, you, the, the way in which you won't see me is you'll be singing hosannas and waving those, uh, you know, those palm things in the air. That'll be one way. And the next way in which you won't see me is you'll be cheering the, the uh, crucifiers on. One way or another, gradually, all of you won't see me. And the next time you see me is when you make the faith proclamation. So I think there's almost this image of stepping into this, this mist where the epistemological power of the old system takes over. And one gets caught up in it in one way or another and really can't see what's happening until the epistemological power of that old system is broken by the cross, and then we can see him again. When we say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And to underscore that, you know, Jesus is not fond of large crowd. He's a sort of uh, where two or three are gathered together type of guy. <laughs> and so, at least there are these references. <laughs> There are these references, you know, to large crowds make Jesus a little bit nervous because it was in reference to a large crowd that he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, you see. So we have to see this. So you can see that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he turns around and lo and behold, there's this large crowd. And you think, well, let's see. Given the fact that he's the only person around who knows what's going to happen when he gets there, even though he tried to tell him, he looks at this large crowd and he's disconcerted by it. This is this is obvious from the way the text flows. It says, he turned and said to them, what would he, what would he say? I'm glad you all came. Uh, so nice to have you. He turned and said, quote, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now that will thin the crowd out. <laughs> and and that's obviously what it was designed to do. You see what I mean? Why? It says there was this crowd, he turned and saw it and turned around and said this. You see? Thin the crowd out. Why do you want to thin the crowd out? If you're preparing a remnant, they have to be a, they have to be enough of a crowd so that they get caught up in the mimetic contagion. But if the crowd is too big, and the mimetic contagion is too powerful. It'll be too much. So it's like it's like the recipe for the remnant. You see what I mean? It's 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 like uh, it's like some chemist trying to come come up with the right exactly the right uh, combination here of crowd contagion and lucidity. Now this is this harsh language: hate mother, father, uh, wife, children, so on. Carry the cross, follow me. Jesus says, I come to bring division. A family of five will be three against two, two against three. If you do not gather with me, you'll scatter and so on. There's all this talk in here about scattering. This is, and I think here's where typical biblical scholarship is right when it says this is oriental hyperbole. It is. I don't want to water it down, though. If there are two orders of reality, and the lesser order of reality is regarded as higher than the greater order of reality, the biblical way of setting things straight is always very radical. So it will say, it will use language like hate, 
with reference to something that is simply needs to be put back in its place, you see. So there's that, I would say about it, at one level. At another level, Jesus is deconstructing the conventional family. And we say, oh, well, he's deconstructing. What does that mean? Does that mean we're all on our own now and so much for that? When we get to the prodigal son, you realize he reconstructs the family in an entirely new way, more powerful than ever. More powerful than ever. But here, he's radically deconstructing it. So the old family, the old order, will have to be broken and then fixed. And that's the way the cross does everything, you see. It has to be broken and made whole again. Uh, what uh, Yeats says, uh, nothing can be whole or soul until it has first been rent. Uh, that's, that's absolutely Eucharistic, you know. The, the, the Eucharist is broken and given, and that without that, the Eucharist is not the Eucharist. So you have the whole, the whole mystery of the cross is that it must be broken. This is my body which will be broken. You see, this kind of thing. And the family, everything, the world, everything has to, uh, un, has to experience that. And that passage I quoted from Leonard Cohen at the, in the beginning of my book where he says, uh, uh, there is a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. So I want to go from this image here of hating brother and mother, father, son, wife, children, etc., etc., to the prodigal son story, which is a, which is a redefining of uh, that relationship. And I want to see it at many levels, actually. But before we get to it, there's a little overture. There's a two-part overture to this story, which uh, t uh, it begins with the first verses of chapter 15. And the overture has to do with two images that prepare us, set us up for the prodigal son story. And the first is of lost sheep. The, the text says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Just before this, I skipped it for sake of time, there are a lot of stories about uh, and parables about somebody throwing a big dinner and uh, the, the uh, privileged guests don't come, so you go out and you get the poor and the lame and the, and the blind and uh, the sinners, and so you bring them in, everybody gets brought in. And so this idea that we, that, this, that we especially want to bring in those whose heads are bent by the spirit of Satan, and bring them in and heal them and forgive them. This idea. So here it says the tax collectors and sinners were beginning to come to him. In other words, they suddenly realized, hey, this is about us. This is about us being able to hold our head up straight. See? The Pharisees and scribes were, of course, grumbling at this. And they said this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells two parables. One parable is... Quote, which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds him? But then he says, when the shepherd has found this lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. It's a beautiful, tender image here. Again, Luke is brilliant at this. He lays it on his shoulders. How many, how many artists have painted this, you know, this image? And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so, I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, repentance, which is, the word is metanoia, is better than righteousness. Repentance is better than righteousness. Now, as Paul understood so well, that, that's a gospel truth, but uh, how are you going to preach it and to whom? <laughs> he says, should I sin so that grace may abound? That's Paul's version of it. R repentance is better than righteousness. Why is that? Because, to use this metaphor, when you find the sheep that's lost, you find more than was lost. The end result is more. If somebody came up to this man and said, hey, you know, I've got this extra sheep. You want it? Sure, he says, fine, give me it. Boom. Rejoicing? No. One more sheep. That's it. It's the lostness and being found that's the source of joy. That's the process of conversion. Being lost and being found. Robert Frost says in his poem, Directive, are you lost enough to find yourself? It's lost and being found, but it's not finding yourself. It's being found. It involves a certain kind of finding yourself, as we'll see when we get to the prodigal son story. But it's more than what was lost. A life of righteousness, as some of us know who've occasionally given it a shot, realize, uh, is filled with sinfulness, you know. So that... So that uh, the, all Jesus is saying is you can't get there from here. In other words, you can't. This is what Paul recognized. It's exactly what Paul, Paul. Luke has been influenced by Paul, you know. And this is what Paul recognized. You can't get to the kingdom, to speak in Christian terms, you can't get to righteousness uh, by trying to be righteous. And that's the Paul's whole understanding of a justification through faith has to do with precisely the same conundrum, I think. And so there's more rejoicing over the one. Now, in the next uh, little parable, it's the same way. And again, it's the, the, the man and then the woman. Now it's the woman. She loses a coin. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and searches carefully. Now, if we were doing a retreat, we would we would spend some time thinking about our own lives and how what it means to light the lamp, sweep the floor, and and search carefully. She finds the coin, and then it says, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin I had lost. And Jesus says, that's just the way it's going to be uh, in heaven when, when those th who, that have been lost uh, are found. And some biblical scholars say, you know, if you take a look at this, they know what this coin was worth and so on. This is kind of corny, but it's, it's also of some value. They say, it looks for all the world as though this woman spent more money on this party than the coin was worth. <laughs> now, you figure it out. You see? What does that mean? That means it's not about economics. It's not about gaining what you lost. It's about something much more important happening. So the parable at that point just explodes. You see? It's interesting that the word righteousness has kind of undergone a, a shift like so many other key words because of the Christian revelation. So when you hear the word righteousness, 
you automatically think self-righteousness. In the same way, when you hear sacrifice, you automatically think self-sacrifice in today's world. And so righteousness has become a negative word. But in fact, there is... Now, we should say, we should all strive to live morally rectified lives. But we do better at that when we realize that we're sinners to the core. <laughs> and so it's like the AA program. You know, people in AA say, they never say, I used to be a drunk. <laughs> they say, I still am and I'm not drinking. So there's something about the righteousness of Christian moral effort, which is always aware of our sinfulness. So now let's turn to the parable of the prodigal son, which, by the way, People, biblical scholars say should not be called that, should be called the parable of the profligate father or the parable, parable of the, of the uh, resentful elder brother or something like that. But it's all of those things. But I want to remember now that I want to see this parable in three, at three levels at least. One is at the level of Western history to the extent that we Westerners are the prodigal sons who have walked away from the tradition thinking that we could we could float it out out there on the basis of some renaissance of humanism enlightenment humanism or something like that and uh, finding ourselves in a big fix i've already talked about that a little bit i want to interpret it on, on the level of the family being redefined and here you have to think back to jesus saying he who does not hate his mother and father and his da 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 that's the deconstruction of the old uh, order, all of you know the whole, all the institutions of the old order in a way, pr predicting their deconstruction. It can't; it has to be broken, and then it's put back together. So here we have another definition of what it means to be family, which is much more powerful. And finally, I want to interpret it at the level of personhood, the unique kind of personhood that Christianity uh, implies. So, here's the parable. Jesus said, this is after the lost coin and the lost sheep. It's the same basic structure. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that will belong to me. So he divided the property between the sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his property in dissolute living. Now, the very fact that he's asking his father, give, give me my share now, I want to go out on my own. That very fact is interesting because it's a, it's a sign of the scattering process. You see, why does the son suddenly get into his head, oh, I want mine now, I want to go someplace else and do it on my own? You see, something is loosening. Some kind of bonds are loosening up. So now it's more important to go do it on my own than it is to be part of this community. Now, is that bad? No, because it is, it's, just a, it's just as bad and good as, as individualism is. Is individualism bad? Yes and no. You see? It's bad because it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's founded on false premises and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, it's a part of the process that has to happen as the scattering begins, which makes possible a new kind of gathering. So it's the breaking up of things and the calling back together. Anyway, I don't want to get too 
caught up in all that. But the point is, he, he, he got his, uh, what was his inheritance, he went, took it away, left the, the source of it, and squandered it. The Greek word here, in the, in the passage where Jesus says, he who does not gather with me will be scattered, the word scattered there is scorpizo, and here the word is diascorpizo, which is a kind of an emphatic version of the same thing, the scattering. He squandered it in this foreign country. So there's that. Jesus is telling the parable. Then he says, when he spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. This is a Gentile country. He's now working for a Gentile, which by Jewish standards was a demeaning thing. And this man who hired him sent him into his field to feed his swine. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, and then it says, and then he came to himself. And he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, and then he begins to practice the speech that he's going to give when he gets back to his father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. He practices his little speech. Now, let's go back up in this story a second. First of all, is it bad that the prodigal son is prodigal? Yes. But on the other hand, is it bad that the, that the one sheep got lost and that the coin got lost? Yes. Is it much, much better? This is like Felix Kupa, you know. Is it much, much better that the sheep was found, the coin was found, and the prodigal son returned? Yes. Better to have gone out, gotten lost, find your way back, undergo the mystery of metanoia, than to have stayed all the while. So that's, that's what the parable is all about. It's better. Should I sin so that grace may abound? This is this great mystery. There's a quality... There's an aspect to it that we can even put our finger on almost. Now, nobody I've ever seen this ever mentioned this. Surely somebody has, but I didn't see it. It says he went, was sent to the fields working for the Gentile, taking care of swine, feeding swine, uh, envying the swine for what they're eating. Swine represent the epitome of what the elaborate Jewish dietary laws forbade. You see? So in a way, this moving out of his ethnocentric world has had this one side effect, which if you compare this story, there's another story, Luke wrote it in the Acts of the Apostles, which is the story of Peter and Cornelius. And Peter is still abiding by all the dietary laws, and he has this vision, and uh, there are all these animals you're not supposed to eat, and the voice from heaven says, eat, and Peter says, by no means, and the voice from heaven says, eat. You see? And so Peter has to realize that until he is able to break free of those, those details of religious scrupulosity, the, the nickel is not going to drop in terms of Christian conversion. Now, there's a, so all I'm saying is there's a little hint of that here. When, you, when the, there's mention of swine and eating, 
you get, I think, a little Lucan innuendo that one of the benefits of this, of this son's apostasy is that he has stepped outside of the little uh, ethnic envelope and therefore uh, is able to appreciate the essence of it when he returns.